This is the third general session of our fourth international convention. My name is Bill Herb. <laughs> A little more tired, but very full of this great moment. I'm going to ask someone to lead us in the serenity prayer. Who a good many of you know, I would say thousands of you know, a rather remarkable person. Thousands of you know her and love her for her terrific disposition. And also the fact that she's very easy to look at. Along with it, she has some very great talents, great talents of organization, great talents of getting cooperation from people, great talents of follow-through. Along with it, she has a tremendous amount of serenity, and she has so much durability that we call Hazel R. the Iron Butterfly. Hazel? Shall we open with a moment of silence? And as we have this moment, reflect in gratitude for the miracle that has been ours for the past three days and for the past 30 years. And I know that all of our hearts are heavy, really, with hope that all the still sick alcoholics around the world will have the great joy that has come to be ours through AA Living. And following this moment, those who care to, please join me in the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Amen. Some very brief announcements. Up to the end of the meeting yesterday, we were congratulating ourselves on the fact that the camera enthusiasts had read the program and were conforming and not taking any pictures during the sessions. Uh, we congratulated ourselves a little too early, and I would like to suggest that we let the individual break his anonymity if he wishes. But let's not do it for him by taking pics. And our usual suggestion to the press that they observe our anonymity, particularly on the level of public level of press and film and broadcasting. 
For tonight's show, the exchange booth here will be open from 6 to 8. So that if you have a white badge, you can exchange it for a blue badge. Blue badges are essential for admission. The registration desk will also be open for someone who hasn't registered and wants to register only for the show tonight. I doubt if there are too many of that. Our chairman for today is unquestionably one of the most devoted servants in AA's 30 years of history. He's a non-AA, he's an MD, he's very distinguished in the field of industrial medicine, he's director of the medical department of Eastman Kodak, and he's a real person along with it. He has a warmth and sympathy and an understanding of, of us that has set some standards that we are pretty hard put to even try to live up to. He's also a great friend. Dr. Nars, more affectionately known as Dr. Jack, the chairman of our General Service Board. folks raise the devil with my humility. It isn't very often that a physician has the opportunity to call the shots on the clergy. At least in public. I'm going to do that this morning by picking my own scripture that I haven't told them about, and I'm going to tie it in, as I hope you will see the relevance, with the eleventh step. I've taken the scripture from the first book of John, the fourth chapter, the seventh and the eighth verses. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God, and knows God. He that loveth not knoweth not his God, knoweth not God, for God is love. And then from the eleventh step, we seek through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understand him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. I have been aware since I have lived and worked with AA and individual alcoholics of the importance of theology to a degree that had never reached me until 20 odd years ago when 
I first began to try and help people find their way out of the squirrel cage. And as I have seen them live through the pink cloud stage, full of awe, full of gratitude, for the first time in many years, perhaps in their life, feeling free, I've seen them drift insensibly into a feeling that they were God's chosen people. That in being, as we say, when we are really humble, when we try to be humble, that we are merely the channels of God's grace. We drift rather insensibly into expecting God to dance to our tune. We say that God is on our side. And we forget that when we say the 11th step, that we are praying for his will for us. We forget when we say the Lord's Prayer that we say, Thy will, not mine, be done. But in these first days and in experiences like this when we are on the mountaintop, we are conscious of the presence of God in our lives. And in part because it is mediated through people, in part because we do communicate in words and at depth as well. It is inevitable that we think of God as akin to a person. We say, Our Father. And so often we hear in AA about the man upstairs who will take care of us, who will take care of AA. So it is inevitable that we try to make God in our own image, that we do make God in our image. AA is just following the path of the race, as all sorts of theologians, religious people, have tried to explain God, have tried to interpret God and always our pictures are too small. We just can't conceive of a spirit with whom we can have deeper contact than we can have with an individual person who can have that same contact with everyone, let alone in spite of this tremendous power to have given us freedom, the freedom to disobey, the freedom to try to make him dance to our tune. And then when things go wrong, when the stresses of life come as they come to all of us, we begin to pray doing all the talking. 
when we don't get the answer to our prayer, what we think is our prayer, what we think is our need, when we don't get the answer now. And some of, some of us, particularly until we have learned to work more deeply in AA, until we have taken advantage of the wisdom of the Church, of the dedication and fellowship and desire to help of the clergy. Some of us say there ain't no God, and then you know what happens. Resentment, self-pity, anger, all the other things that we have lived with for so long as practicing drunks take over, and we're back in the squirrel cage again. Many years ago, I don't know just when it came into the thinking of AA, Bill spoke about the three-legged stool, where we need AA, where we need religion, where we need science. It's only as together we can become mature enough to communicate with mutual respect, mutual confidence, mutual humility, realization that there are many, many answers that we don't know and with our present tools we can't know. And yet AA has taught us that we have the tools with which to be like this with which to be a part of the miracle that these last few days have been. AA has been fortunate in its friends and its friends of the clergy. And for those of clergy and of medicine who have come to AA to learn We have had fire come into our spirits, a meaning come into what we're doing, and a great joy. We have two of these good friends with us this morning. I don't want to take too many liberties with the Reverend Robinson's humility. But I think of the number of letters that came into GSO from those people who know him best, urging that we bring him to this stage this morning. He is pastor of the First Christian Church in Billings, Montana. He's previously pastor of the First Christian Churches at La Grande, Oregon, and Turner, Oregon. He has been a part of the fellowship, not quite so much in the limelight as I have, but deeply loved by those who know him best. And it is my privilege and pleasure to bring to you this morning the Reverend Gene Robinson.
My name is Gene. Hi. My name is not still Gene, I'll tell you that. I have never been accused of being still in all my life. I was born talking and have been at it ever since. I hope I may do better than a friend of mine described once after a convention speech in which he got up and said, I like to hear Gene Robinson because he can always get up and give a speech whether he's got anything to say or not. <laughs> there have been so many questions asked in the past few months since this invitation came that I feel really obligated to try to answer some of them. My friends in AA have said to me, why have you been chosen to give this speech? And I've wondered about it myself. Believe me, I have. I think probably the only explanation is what I gave to our local groups when I told them of the fellow who was elected a deacon in his church and one of his friends said, how did you ever get to be a deacon? You're the worst lying, stealing, chasing, carousing man in the whole town. How did you get to be a deacon? And he said, well, I'll admit all of that, but the truth, the truth is that the disreputable element in this church just rose up and demanded that they be represented on the board. <laughs> I wouldn't want to say anything about those wonderful people that wrote those letters, but believe me, I'm here representing somebody this morning. The other part of the explanation I try to give to the members of my family and to my friends outside and to the members of my church, sometimes I try to describe it as I did to a New Year's party in Billings a couple of years ago when I said to them, I've often wondered what's going to happen to my reputation when my congregation finds out that I spent New Year's Eve with 40 alcoholics. But if you think that's rough, just wait till your friends find out that you spent New Year's Eve with a preacher. I couldn't possibly tell you the story of God as I understand him without making some very personal references, and I hope you'll forgive me for these. But you and I have discovered a long time ago that you don't learn AA out of a book. You learn it down where people live. And where we are, this is where this thing happens, and this is where God reaches us. And so at the risk of being entirely too personal with it, let me tell you something of the story. I was raised in a wide-open town in southern Oregon, a place called Klamath Falls. And at Klamath Falls, Oregon, in the days when I was a young fellow, there were just two kinds of people, really, in our community, the rowdies and the blue noses. You had to make your choice which kind you were going to be, and I didn't want to be one of the rowdies, and so I became a blue nose. Thank God, in years later, I learned that there is another way of life, and I have come to it. But in the process of those years as a blue nose, living in a teetotaling family, I remember that we took into our home one year a man who was a veteran of the First World War. He lived on a pension, a, a disability pension, and everything went along real fine with Frank until that pension came every month. And then we had trouble keeping him and the pension together, and if they both... <clears throat> If they both got to town at the same time, you could be sure that one or the other, and sometimes both, didn't come home. Well, I remember one night that my folks had searched the local bars until they found Frank, and they brought him back home again. I was about 13 years of age, as I remember it. I had already decided that I wanted to be a minister, but I was a long ways from understanding what being a minister really involved. And I remember that Frank got me collared up against the wall in the living room 
The rest of the family had, had listened long enough, and they weren't listening anymore. But I was still listening, and I remember that he put his arm on the wall. I think the wall was moving. I'm not sure. But he put his arm on the wall, and he leaned right over me to talk to me. <clears throat> From that day to this, I have recognized the smell of second-hand alcohol without any trouble at all. <clears throat> and I recall that Frank said to me, Gene, you want to be a preacher? And I said, yes, I do. And he said, you want to do something to help people, don't you? And I said, yes, Frank, I do. And he said, well, then, for God's sake, do something to help me quit my drinking, will you? I don't know whether Frank is still alive or dead. I've lost track of him in more than 30 years since that time. But I know that the words that Frank spoke and the look that he gave me that day have never gone away from me, and I'll never escape them as long as I live. It was about that same year that there came to our community an evangelist. Those were the days of the Depression. That fellow preached every night for four weeks. Believe me, that was preaching, and that was listening. And I listened to a lot of it. And when the meeting was all over, our minister went to the ministerial association and then came back and told our congregation that he'd reported to them. When they asked him how many new members came into your church during that four weeks, he said there were 53 and one drunk. I remember the night that that one drunk came. I will vouch for the minister's statement that he was drunk when he came. But somehow the thing that our pastor said, as wonderful a man as he was, just never went down straight with me. It lodged in my throat. Because even as a boy I said to myself, no, there were 54 people. That man was drunk, he had done many things wrong, and many things wrong had been done to him. But he was still the child of God, created in the image and the likeness of God, and I pray that God will never help me to forget it. Well, the years came and went. I started to preach. I faced many problems, but they were trivial and insignificant compared to some that came later. In 1946, I went to become pastor at La Grande, Oregon. There came into our services on a Sunday evening the following year a man who, whose wife conned him into going to church, if the truth is known. And I recall that he went out in a real huff because he was positive she'd briefed me and filled me in on his life. He said nobody could come that close to the way I live if somebody hadn't told his preacher ahead of time. Well, he kept on coming. He kept coming long enough that this fellow is here in our convention today. And I've hunted all over this convention this morning for Les M. from La Grande, Oregon. I lost him after breakfast, and I haven't been able to find him. I wanted him right down here in these front rows while I speak, but maybe it'll be easier for me to say it if I can't see Les. But if ever there was a man in the world who was a non-alcoholic with a sponsor, I'm it. And Les is my sponsor. And I recall... I recall one day that I sat in my office in La Grande and the telephone rang and here was a fellow who was having trouble with his words and with his thoughts and who was very, very drunk. And uh, we had a Salvation Army captain in our town who delighted in putting on an act of one sort and another and I said, aha, Captain Scriven, that's who I've got. And after three or four things in which I strung him along a little bit, it began to dawn on me that I didn't have Captain Scriven at all. I had a man who was looking for help. I said, I'll come to you or you can come to me, whichever is best. And he said, if you'll stay there, I'll be there in five minutes. He was there in far less than five minutes. And Les came in and talked to me about the problem that he faced and about the breakup that had come in his first home and about the breakup that was almost to come in his second home because of his drinking. 
He talked to me about a lot of things, and then I remember that Les said to me, Can you help me? For God's sake, help me. I didn't know much about it. I knew something of the evils of drink. I knew something of the power of God. But I learned that morning that I hadn't learned very much about either one. And I began to talk to Les, and I said, Les, I know that I can't help you. That much I know. I know that you can't do this thing yourself. That much I know. I know that only the power of God can help you. And I'll never forget how he looked across that desk at me and he said, Gene, I'll buy that, but how can the power of God get through to a drunk like me? And I couldn't answer his question, but before God that morning I made a vow that someday I'd be able to answer that question. And I recall that a doctor in our community referred less to a doctor in Portland, and he went down there for two weeks. The doctor treated him in the daytime and took him to AA meetings at night. He kept him busy, you can be sure. And at the end of two weeks, Les came back to me and he said, Gene, I found it. And I think that you found it too. And he showed me some literature. There wasn't much then compared to what there is now. But he showed me what he had. He told me of the wonderful program. He told me of a group that existed in Pendleton, Oregon, 56 miles away. But for two years, this man of God who came to me as the angel of God that day, he thought he was looking to me for help. And I knew that I found my help through him that day. This man went to meetings over the hill to Pendleton, but he had no one else in the town of Lagrand. And for two years he was a loner in the community. And he and I talked it out together. And Les delights in telling people that I was his sponsor and I was his teacher. He just puts it very well when he says, I didn't know anything about the program and Gene didn't know anything about the program, so we taught each other. And that's just exactly the way it happened. And when Les gets to the place of telling me... When Les gets to the place of telling in front of me that I was his teacher, it reminds me of a very wonderful woman in our city of Billings who's taught for a number of years in specialized education, and she teaches retarded children. And one day she and her husband were coming out of a drugstore in Billings just as one of her pupils and his mother came through the door, and in a clear voice that only a child can speak, she heard him say, Mama, look, there comes my retarded teacher. And for 17 years after Les and I have come on this program together, I have tried to be his retarded teacher, and he has been the angel of God to me. And I want to tell you the rest of the story, and that is that Les was later a deacon in the church of which I was pastor and was chairman of our board of deacons, and he was so good at it that we always called him the sneaking deacon. What I'm trying to say to you has a lot to do with my understanding of God, because you see, I started out as a servant of God, and I'd taken my ordination vows some eight or nine years before. But I discovered that God was out looking for me a long time before I ever started out looking for him. I thought I had found him. But he had a quality, he had something to offer to me, he had a, 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 a great thing in my ministry that could only be offered through the medium of AA. And I praise God for the day that Les came through my door and said, let's find this thing together. And I believe that this is still true, that as God looked for me, God looks for you. And he doesn't stand around and wait for somebody to set out and make the search for God long before we ever even heard of him. God was looking for us. And when he finds us, this is the miracle of all.
that God likes us. And I use that term deliberately. I love the thing that Dr. Norris read to us this morning about the love of God. And he who loves his brother can see God. Yes, this I believe. This I have found and learned. But I use that term sometimes rather hesitantly because so many times it's been abused. A member of my congregation came in one day and he said, Do you still say that I have to love everybody? And I said, You bet I do. And he said, Well, does that mean I have to like the so-and-sos too? Well, a lot of us are asking that question, and sometimes we're not asking, does God love me? Oh yes, I know this, but I want to know, does God like me? I don't know sometimes how God can even understand me, or how God can even stand me at all. And in the time that I cannot believe in myself, and in the time that I cannot stand myself, in the time that I cannot stand up and say, here I am, a child of God, even in that moment, I know that God likes me. And this, to me, is the greatest miracle of all. Not that he helps me, but that he likes me while he's helping me. And I don't believe that anybody will ever come to a better understanding of God than this. This is the essence of it all. But now, here again, I want to qualify for a moment what I'm saying. Because, you see, a lot of people have interpreted this thing wrong. They've looked on AA and the love of God as some kind of a soft blanket, as some kind of a pillow on which people are carried... You ask the average man along the street what he knows about AA, and he knows something about it. But what he knows so often is that, he thinks he knows, that AA is a real soft-hearted guy who sits by the telephone waiting for it to ring so he can come and hold somebody's hand while he cries and feels sorry for himself. And to the average person, this is what AA does. And I said to the members of my congregation last Sunday morning, read the 12 steps which I have printed on the back page of the bulletin for today. And you begin to see that what we're talking about here is a total program and there's nothing easy about it at all. It's a tough thing to face up to this and to get on this program when you talk about admitting the exact nature of your wrongs to God and to another person and to yourself. There's nothing really easy about this, is there? A lot of us have spent a lot of years trying to con God. We've been trying through the years to pull things over on him, and we've suddenly begun to discover that it cannot be done. There are two things that you cannot con. One of them is the wife of an alcoholic, and the other one is God, who likes and loves alcoholics. And I never heard it put better than I did in one time a story of a fellow who whose wife kept at him, she knew something was wrong, she didn't quite know what, and she kept at him, go to the doctor, go to the doctor. Well, he knew better than to go, but he knew he didn't dare to stay home, and finally he went. And the doctor checked him over, and I'll refer to Dr. Jack here in a moment, see? And the doctor checked him over, and he said, well, boy, I can tell you one thing, you've got to quit drinking, you're drinking entirely too much. The fellow started home, but he knew he didn't dare to take home a story like that. And so he walked slowly along the street, trying to find what he could explain to his wife. And as he went along, he passed a music store. And in that music store, he read in the display the word syncopation. And he said, that's it. She won't know what that means. So he went home, and when she asked him what was wrong, he said, well, the doctor says I have a very bad case of syncopation. She said, what in the world is that? And he said, well, I don't know, but you know how these doctors are. They always have a big word for it. And she said, well, I think we'd better check on that. That sounds bad. So she got down the dictionary and looked in it, and it says that syncopation is an irregular movement from bar to bar. (laughs) 
I learned a long time ago, <laughs> I learned a long time ago that when you deal with God, you deal with one who is just that way and you can't con him at all. But isn't it a wonderful thing that he likes us well enough to lay on the whip once in a while? He likes us well enough to say, there are some things you cannot do. There are limits every time there's love. There is no such thing as love without limits. Think, if you will, of the illustration of marriage. Someone has said that marriage is a situation in which a person puts on a little band of gold around his finger, and that band of gold cuts off his circulation. Well, there are limits to love. There are limits to love every time, and God is not soft with us. He has the nerve to do what needs to be done. But somehow it comes through to us loud and clear every time that God likes us very much. Another thing I've learned in understanding God in these 17 years, particularly since I have been working so closely with AA, is that God listens to me. And this is a peculiar sort of thing because, you see, I deal with a lot of people who are convinced, at first at least, that nobody ever listens to them except an occasional bartender and a few of his patrons. And the unfortunate thing is that they're just about right. A lot of the people in churches, a lot of the nice people who go to church this Sunday morning are people who are not ready to listen when a man says, here's my soul and I want to share it with you. And I thank God that he is not one of the nice people, but he's the sort that simply stops and listens when I have something to say. There are a great many people who say, I wish that I had the ability to stand up in public and talk. My friends, the greater gift of God by far is to sit quietly with one man and listen. And this is exactly the thing that God does, and this is where I find him, in the moments that I too learn to listen. Now, a lot of us get the idea that you shouldn't clutter up God with the things that are, you know, are real problems. I have members in my congregation who treat me this way. We say, they say, we don't like to call you and tell you all of our problems and burden you with all these things. They like to talk to me about little things and criticize each other and be trivial sometimes, but they certainly don't want to trouble me with big things. And whenever I hear this or I hear somebody say, I don't want to pray and burden God with all this, I'll do it myself, I can do it myself, you know. It reminds me of a friend of mine who lived neighbor to me while I was in high school. She lived in a house. She was a woman 70 years old and lived in a house up on a side hill. And 365 nights a year, she slept in a screen porch in a very cold climate. She was one of the sturdy people of the world, you can be sure. And she was the committee, she was chairman of the committee in charge of everything in our neighborhood. She was one of these. Well, one night... She heard thieves in her chicken house that was down across the road from the house. She always slept with a shotgun right by her bed, and she slipped out of bed, pushed open the screen door, and blazed away with this shotgun. By the time she had emptied the second barrel, her son came jumping right through from his bedroom window out onto the porch where his mother was. And when she told him what it was, he said, Why, Mother, why didn't you call me? She said, Oh, son, I knew that you'd had a real rough day and that you were tired, and I just didn't want to bother you at all. And there are a lot of us who don't want to bother God with our prayers. But I have discovered the truth of that thing that I use on my calling cards that says pray daily. God is easier to talk to than most people. This is mighty true. And then I've discovered another thing, and that is that God lifts me. And here again I use the term advisedly because, you see, we've been dealing for a long time in a situation where we say, well, I get a lift out of this drink. There are a lot of us who haven't stopped to think what alcohol really is and what it does. It's amazing how many people have never really thought it through. 
But when we come on the program, many times we want that same kind of lift, the sort of thing that, that, that blots out, the sort of thing that gives us a temporary relief. And God is not interested in this kind of temporary relief at all. He wants to do a thoroughgoing job on us, and he's willing to do that job. But he doesn't do it from a distance. He is never hard to reach. Because, you see, the hand of God is always close, and it reaches right down to us. And when that hand of God reaches out, it often is dirty, because it has gotten into somebody else's problems, too. But he's willing to offer to us the hand of help. And when he does, he goes the whole way. He goes in the process. The process that begins by saying that we're going to admit that we need the help of God. And the process that goes right on to say that we determine to turn our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. And I'd like to put the emphasis on the first part rather than the last. Because I am thoroughly convinced that nobody will ever come to really understand God until he learns to turn his life over to the will and the care of God, however he may understand him. One friend of mine said, I said when I came on this program, how can I do that? I don't understand God at all. And a friend of mine said, well, then turn your life over to God as you misunderstand him. This is exactly the thing that needs to be done. And this is the place where it begins. When I was living in La Grande, I walked down the hall of St. Joseph Hospital one night. One of the grandest Christian women that I've ever known is a spunky little Irish nun by the name of Sister Frances. I'd love to see her now. I heard last she was in Tacoma, Washington. And I recall that as I went past the door she, of the chart room, she said, Jean, come here a minute. I need to talk to you. I walked into that chart room and she said, there's a woman here right in the next room and I don't want her to hear me. But she's been having a terrible time all day and a lot of us have tried to get through to her and we're not getting through. I know you've called on her a time or two. Go in and see what you can do, will you? I made my other calls, and then I came back to this room last, expecting to spend considerable time. This woman said to me, I've got to get out of here. I'm having terrible trouble. I need to go home. And I said to her, what's the big rush about going home from the hospital all of a sudden? She said, well, you know I have a ranch up in Wallowa County, and I have fences that need to be repaired and cattle that need shots and hay that isn't in and a barn that needs a roof fixed, and she made a list that just made me tired clear through as I listened to it. And finally, I said to her, do you mean to tell me you've been down here in this hospital for two weeks and there's nobody at home to take care of your ranch at all? She said, oh, I've got two daughters and two son-in-laws up there, but you know how these young people are. They can't take care of things, and they need me. Well, I said to her what a minister of God is expected to say. I said, you know, there are times that we can't run everything ourselves. There are times that we need to just relax and let go of these things, let go and let God, you see, to let go of these things and put all of our problems in the hand of God and let him run our lives. Just like that, she said, oh, I couldn't do that. Think what a mess everything would get into. <laughs> I laughed at first and then I was shocked. I didn't know which was the proper emotion under the circumstances, but I went on out in a minute. I went back down the hall and I found Sister Frances and I said, now, here, you come in the chart room with me this time, and this time I shut the door. And I said to her, I want to tell you what that woman said to me. I told her, and we both stood up against the walls and laughed. And then all of a sudden we both turned very serious, and Sister Frances looked right straight at me, and she said, Jean, about the only difference between her and us is that she's a lot more honest than you and I are. And I know she was telling me the truth, straight from God. But I know that this whole process and this whole 12 steps 
And this whole rebuilding of a life that's far more than the mention of alcohol and alcoholism. This is a way of life. This is a new character that is built. And this done by the power of God is the process. But thank God it is also a partnership. For God lifts me, not only through the program to which I come, but through the people whom I find. I've reveled in the glories of the fellowship of these days. And I have found that AAs are AAs the world around. And wherever you run across them, somehow there's a tie that binds, and it's the tie that begins in failure and ends in the power of God. And I think that I want to pay my tribute this morning to everyone who in any way does, does his stint in 12-step work. But even more, I want to pay my tribute to the Al-Anon members, to the friends of AA, who somewhere are willing to not just sit in the background, but to be down there where people are. For wherever a man... Wherever I've found a man who has been lifted by the power of God, I know that he's laid hold on that power through some human hand that's stretched out to him. I know a lot of people who say, I want to die with my boots on. Maybe they say that more in Montana than they do uh, over here in Ontario. I have a wonderful pair of Wellington boots, but I don't want to die with them on. Believe me, I want to live with those. But I have discovered that as I reach out my hands for my own help and put my hand into the hand of God... He immediately tells me to reach out my hand on the other side and see if I can't find someone else who's reaching out a hand to him too. I found it first through a human hand reaching to me. I hope for the grace of God be able to pass it on like the school kids used to do in that simple little game. And so I pray that God will give me the grace to reach to the hand of God on one side and on the other to reach out to any man anywhere who seriously wants the help of God. And this is the only way that there is that I know to really live. But believe me, brother, it's living, clear to the core and clear to the very heights. One of the greatest philosophers of earth is a man who said that this whole thing is built about the profound humiliation of man, the boundless love of God, and the endless striving that is born of gratitude. And it is this endless striving that by the grace of God, will eventually bring me to the place where I can understand him and the people whom he likes so much that he's chosen to call AA.